Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. This week, I bring you inside an event I did with the Politics and Prose Bookstore with Dan Rather about his new book, What Unites Us, Reflections on Patriotism. The former CBS newsman and anchor of the CBS Evening News and I talk about patriotism, politics, media, and why the 86-year-old is such a hit with millennials. And you can hear it all right now. Thank you. I mean, Dan, and I can call you Dan, right? Please. Um, <laughs> you, your birthday was Halloween. You turned 86. And I've got two questions. Um, have you ever considered retiring? I mean, you, you've earned it. No. <laughs> no, uh, Jonathan, it's a fair question. Uh, but I like to work. Uh, I'm the son of two very hardworking parents. Uh, I really like to work, and I love this work, which is to say I've always had a passion uh, for reporting news. So as long as I have my health, God's grace, and somebody will listen or read or watch, then I really do like to work. Um, and speaking of people who like to listen and read and watch, the other thing that's so fascinating is that you are wildly popular, and wildly popular with millennials. I mean, why do you think that is? Well, the honest answer is, Jonathan, I don't know. I'm amazed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I say this uh, uh, humbly, not a word generally associated with present or past anchormen from television, but nonetheless, (laughs) uh, that I'm amazed by it. I don't understand it. As best I can make out, that when we started the Facebook page uh, with my co-author, Elliot Kirshner, the goal was to try to give some context and perspective to the news, and when possible, and when I felt I had any experience or knowledge to put things into a historical context. So my guess is that in the havoc of the daily headlines, that some people, and I have no illusions, we have a large audience, but it's not the largest audience in social media, that some people are are looking for a a steady, what they consider to be reliable and experienced voice. Mm -hmm. And partly because, let's face it, I've been around a few years and I've been a lot of miles (laughs) as a reporter. Uh, That's the best I can do at guessing what the attraction is. So um, when it comes to writing a book and releasing a book, it's not that you wake up on Monday and by Friday the book is out. This this book took some planning, but it seems as though your timing could not have been more impeccable. Um, And so I'm wondering, when did the idea of this book occur to you? Was it pre-Trump getting into the race? or post-Trump getting into the race? No, it was pretty much around the time when uh, President Trump got elected okay. that we'd been thinking about the book. Uh, I had no idea that we could have the book out, frankly, this soon, uh, in 2017. But the people at Algonquin, the publisher of the book, approached me and said, listen, we've been reading your Facebook uh, pieces. Would you consider doing the book? 
And I said, well, certainly I would, but uh, could we get it out in 2017? And somewhat to my surprise, they said, yes, we can do it in 2017. But the answer to your question, at or about the time President uh, Trump got elected was when was the early seed of the book. Um, one of the things that I love about reading your, your book, and I have my own copy right here. Bless you. And books to me are, are living documents, so I write in them, I underline in them, I write notes. And the thing that I love about your book is from beginning to end, how much it reminded me of who we were, we as a nation, who we were and who we are. And I finished reading the book before Wednesday night. So it was wonderful to read something from someone um, as venerable as you, reminding me that despite the situation that we're in now, that we can get through this. And so that's one of the reasons why I was wondering why, why you wrote this book. Was this to be, in a way, a salve for a hurting nation? Or was it meant to be um, something where people can go back and, in terms of history, be reminded of who we are at a time when we're questioning who we are? Well, if you'll permit me, I've been thinking some about that because in making this book tour in a sort of desperate effort to sell the book, uh, <laughs> uh, then I'm appearing in various places. And this, this is a very common question. So with your permission and only with your permission, I'd like to read something that I typed out anticipating the question. Well, let's make this a, a democracy. Um, should, should Dan read what he wants to read? <laughs> well, thank you. Of course. Well, what I typed out was that, you know, as we have entered a, a very complicated and anxious time during this past year, uh, I've been in a reflective state. Those who know me well might say that a reflective state is rare for me, but I've been in a reflective state. <laughs> and, you know, thinking back over my life and career, I think about all the change and uncertainties that I've witnessed as a child of the Great Depression and World War II, seeing the fever of the Red Scare, the fight for civil rights, Vietnam, Watergate, 9-11, and our current moment of history. And as I've been thinking about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a patriot in the second decade of the 21st century, that really was the beginning of the idea for the book, was what is patriotism? in our time. And I know that a lot of people confuse patriotism with nationalism. Mm -hmm. And one of the discussions in What Unites Us is how important it is to recognize the difference between patriotism and nationalism. But those things were in my head. So I wanted to do a book that contributes to people thinking about what patriotism is. I'm not an expert on patriotism. But as much as anything, the effort of the book is to start a conversation about patriotism and what it is in this time, and to make sure that people do understand that by dictionary definition, there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is, of course, a deep love of country. But one key of patriotism and being a patriot is humility. Mm -hmm. 
we don't, if you're a, a true patriot, you don't take the view that you go around beating on your chest and saying, we're better than everybody else. We're the best, we're the strongest at the time. Uh, that you're humble enough to know that we're in search of the more perfect union. You know, in the very beginning, our founding fathers in the Constitution said, uh, in order to seek a more perfect union. So that's patriotism. Nationalism carries inherent in it a certain amount of arrogance and conceit. And the danger with nationalism carried to extremes. You, have ex you can have extreme economic nationalism and also racial nationalism, as in Aryan nationalism. And we know this, that one of the things I want to do with what unites us is remind people of the historical perspective that follows. That extreme economic nationalism in the 1920s led to the Great Depression. And Aryan nationalism, racial nationalism, led to Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm not suggesting we are at this point. I am suggesting that with the authoritarian nature of the present presidency, Sometimes it's only a short distance to extreme nationalism, which can lead to nativism, and then that can lead to tribalism. And in our great historical, never before in the history of mankind experiment that is the United States, that tribalism, if we ever descend into tribalism, then we're through as the land of the free and the home of the brave. In, in your chapter entitled Steady, and for those of you with the book, I'm going to read from page 249 and 259 because you have this um, analogy of a pendulum. And this fits in with what you're, you're speaking about. Um, on 249, it's your, you've had your rheumatic fever and you've been listening to Edward R. Murrow on the radio and the, the wars. You're listening to him reporting from London. And you write, I had witnessed the great pendulum of personal and national fortune swing in the right direction, and I was armed with the lesson of my father, my hero Murrow, and my country, stay steady. And then, uh, 10 pages later, you write, the pendulum of our great nation, and now we're sort of present day, the pendulum of our great nation seems to have swung toward conceit and unsteadiness once again but it is in our power to rest it back. Our government is there to serve us, not the other way around. And when I read that, um, and it was just after the results on Tuesday of Virginia and New Jersey, and the Minneapolis City Council race, and the mayor's race in Helena, Montana, and Charlotte. And I'm wondering, what do those results um, what do those results tell you in terms of that pendulum swing? I think there are indications that it is the pendulum swinging back, the metaphor I sometimes use as an ebb and flow to American politics. That sometimes we go, we lurch in one direction to the left, if you want to call it that. Other times we lurch to the right, as we did during the Red Scare time. But inevitably, over our history, that ebb and flow steadies itself more or less in the broad middle. And I do think that by any reasonable analysis, a reading of the results of Tuesday gives an indication that the country having swung very far to the right, 
is in the process of swinging a bit more toward the middle. Uh, you and I know from having covered politics a long time that overnight's a long time in politics. Mm -hmm. A week is forever. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly people are talking about what it, maybe a democratic groundswell for 2018. I think it's early, too early to say that. And I would tell you quite honestly, personally, I think that some Democrats are celebrating a little too early. They're doing their equivalent of moonwalking in the end, in the end zone. <laughs> right. Uh, but too early for that. But in answer to your question, I think that the results of this, not just the results themselves, but the margin mm -hmm. by which swung, and within that, most importantly, the difference of the vote this time in the suburbs, not just of Virginia, but around the country, the suburbs, which were a key, one of the keys to Trump's victory, are swinging back the other way. So yes, I think there are early indications that the pendulum may be swinging back the other way. Things to watch. A, a, a very serious war overseas could change things, could change the public mood very mm -hmm. quickly. And most people in the end vote their pocketbooks. Right. So if, if the economy continues to boom, continues to do quite well, that will gravitate to Trump's advantage. If the economy it cools off or starts going the other way, uh, that would be to his disadvantage. But, you know, I, one of the things that I hope people will take from uh, what unites us is that the general overall steadiness of the American people is one of our strengths. Look, we have weaknesses and we have vulnerabilities. We're far from perfect. But overall, in the main, any study of our history shows you that we may go through a period of great division, such as during the 1960s, mm -hmm. divided over the war, race riots in some of our major cities. Uh, we were certainly divided in a disastrous civil war. But we got through it and steadied ourselves. And the spirit of this book is a hope that we can remember that. And if it needs to be said, you know, I'm, a, I'm an optimist by nature and by experience. And I'm absolutely convinced that while this is a, a very anxious time and in many ways a perilous time for the country, we are going to get through this. It may be a long, dark valley to get through. We're going to get through it and we will come out the other end in the medium and long run better off. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Um, thank you. Bring you, back, bring you back to patriotism in that, um, for those of you following along, page 12 chapters, uh, what is patriotism? Um, this line that you wrote um, made me think of another controversy that we've been dealing with. And you write, I see my love of country imbued with a responsibility to bear witness to its faults. And when I read that line, I was instantly brought to the football players in the NFL who are, who are taking a knee, the young protesters around the country who've taken to the streets in the Black Lives Matter movement, the women who flooded the streets of America on January 21st, right. the day after Trump's inauguration to protest um, his incoming policies, the people who took to the streets the week after that when right. he proposed the Muslim ban. And when it comes to the NFL protests, you have the president tweeting, speechifying, saying that those people doing that 
bearing witness to our nation's faults are un-American, they don't love the flag, they don't love the anthem. What do you, what do you make of that? Talk about that. Well, I will talk about it, in, uh, but with a short preface. I stand for the national anthem, and without apology, I stand with my hand over the heart, and I generally at least mouth the words and sometimes actually sing the words. That's what's within me. That's what I feel when I hear the national anthem. Having said that, I respect greatly those who have had different experiences, whose conscience dictates a, a different course. And they have every right to dissent. In fact, dissent, which I talk about in What Unites Us, dissent over the long pole has been one of, those, one of, one of our strengths of the country. Mm -hmm. Because time and again, <laughs> time and again, dissenters have, in the beginning, they're called unpatriotic, they're called you know, against the military, against the flag, what have you. But over time, they, when justice is on their side, then people come around and say, you know what, the radical of yesterday was the prophet of tomorrow. We've seen this time and again, maybe one example I'd use is with women's suffrage. Those women who spoke out seeking the vote for women in the 19th century. You can go back and read what was said about them at the time. They were radical. Uh, they were unpatriotic. Uh, they were trying to undermine the culture and society. Well, it took a while. It took too long. But by the time we got, before we were one-fifth finished with the 20th century, we finally, finally got one of the vote. That's just one example. The Civil Rights Movement, led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in the early 60s, Dr. King was accused of being a communist. He was seen as an extreme radical. Uh, those were among the milder things. However, by continuing to, to stand strong for nonviolent protest in the face of injustice, we wound up by the mid-1960s passing some of the most important domestic legislation in the country. So the point being that we should be very cautious of criticizing dissent. Conscionable dissent is patriotic. And the president, and I'm, I'm trying to be as respectful of the office of the presidency I can, I can, but this effort to shift the public perception of these dissenters as unpatriotic and against the military and against the flag is frankly unconscionable, and that's what's unpatriotic, to castigate. And in, in fact, you, you write on page 35, dissent is doubly necessary to resist a slide into greater autocracy. You, know, you said something just a second ago about uh, your, respect, your respect for the office was holding you back from going full bore. So I'll go, I'll go maybe halfway into full bore. <laughs> to me, as an American, and certainly as an African-American, watching the President of the United States on a Tuesday in August in the lobby of his eponymous tower on Fifth Avenue give moral equivalence 
mega moral equivalency between the Nazis, white supremacists, and the bigots marching on Charlottesville with the people who came out to counter protest um, was a bridge too far for me. Well, it was for me as well. That I thought that in that one action, Donald Trump ceded the moral authority of the presidency by doing that. Am I, am I, am I going too far no. in thinking that? No, definitely not. Okay. No. And, and this, this is exactly why in what unites us, these reflections on patriotism, I didn't want to make it a screed against the Trump administration mm-hmm. And his name is not mentioned anywhere, not at all. anywhere in the book. It was to, to have a broader discussion, to put, again, to use the two words, give, to give some context and perspective to what's going on in the national leadership, that this was unconscionable, what the president did, uh, in making this moral equivalency and sending the proverbial dog whistles and wink winks to the likes of the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. Think about that for a moment. And my hope for the book is I, I hope many of the people who still support President Trump will read the book, not because I'm trying to convince them that they're wrong about some of Trump's policies, but to understand, which I think all of us need to understand, this is not normal. This is unique to this presidency, what's happening here. And I'll give you a specific example. Mm-hmm. Here's a historical context. I'm going to take you back to sometime in the early 70s. Some neo-Nazis uh, paraded in Skokie, Illinois. You can go back and read in the archives. They paraded. At that time, it was, the president was Richard Nixon during that time. It was unthinkable that the president would say anything that tried to make some moral equivalency with them. Now, that was in the early 70s in the presidency of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon wouldn't touch it. I mean, it was just unthinkable that a president would have anything that could be read by, from any viewpoint, giving approval or giving moral equivalence to those neo-Nazis, you know, deep anti-Semites in Soki. Now we go forward to 2018. To, to 2017 to the present year. And this, this is why we have to recognize as a people, whether we're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Mugwump, whatever we are, <laughs> to send a very strong signal that with the President of the United States, who is, let us remember, he is not just head of government, but under our system, he's also head of state. You never met anybody that felt stronger that the, the presidency, because it is a combined head of state and head of government, has the heaviest responsibility of any leader in the world, not because of its strength and the ability to start an atomic war, but what, what the ideal that it, it represents. Mm-hmm. A majority of us don't think now, and I'm convinced won't think in the future. We don't view our presidency as some descendant of a sun god or some you know, some king, he is another citizen who's been elevated to the highest honor we have. And that carries with it a tremendous responsibility. And the criticism of, of President Trump, which I think is most valid, 
is the tone he has brought to the presidency. There's nothing noble in what he's doing. That people want a president to have at least some semblance of nobility because we'd like to think of ourselves as a noble people on a noble experiment to prove that a multi-religious, multi-racial, multi-ethnic uh, society can hold itself together. So this is why it's so important to recognize that this is a unique period. When people say, well, we've had presidents who don't like the press before, that's true. But we've never had a president who so personally, directly, and unrelentingly attack individual reporters, reporters at large, by saying they are, quote, enemies of the people. I suggest to you this is a very dangerous phrase to use, that the press are enemies of the people. With these kind of attacks, of course it's important to our reputations and you can say our, our living as journalists, but it's vital to the country we understand that this has to be unacceptable because a free, a truly free and independent, fiercely independent press when necessary is the red beating heart of freedom and democracy. If we don't have it, we will not have the system of government we have now. You, people have been lauding member, Republican members of Congress like Senator Corker, Senator Flake, Senator McCain, who have stepped out and spoken very bluntly about the president. Two of them are retiring, and, and one is um, facing his own mortality. But it makes me wonder about what responsibility Republicans have to emulate what Corker, Flake, and McCain are doing. And I thought of this when I read this line in the Patriotism chapter, where you ask the question, do you stay and try to change the church from within or leave the church? What would you advise Republicans to do? Well, first of all, uh, I, wouldn't, I would, would not place myself in the position of advising anybody. That I've made so many mistakes and <laughs> have so many wounds, I wouldn't do it. However, I take your question, and it's a serious question. But this is a question of conscience, especially for Republicans, because they are in the majority, and the president is a member of their party. There has been, and I haven't heard this word used much, but again, let's talk directly. Mm -hmm. There's been some cowardice in the Republican Party. It's a cowardice. <laughs> It's a harsh word, and I understand that. The cowardice comes from any number of Republicans who are saying to themselves, I hate what the president's saying. I, hope to, I hate the tone and tenor mm -hmm. of what he's saying. I hate the impression he has left of his, about his style of leadership. But they haven't broken out to say so. As you rightly point out, it's one thing for retiring senators to say it, is another for another senator who's facing his mortality to say it. But it takes, it takes courage, it takes guts to say what your conscience tells you and to do the right thing. I will say this, that Democrats sometimes when they've been in a majority have faced, if not identical, at least similar questions. But right now, again, the Republicans are in the majority. Mm -hmm. That history is going to judge very harshly 
those Republicans who continued to, by their silence, acquiesce in the tone and tenor of this presidency. I don't consider that a partisan political statement. I don't intend it to be that. And I don't want to get into an argument ideology. We're talking about our country, folks. And we're talking about what kind of country we are becoming. And because they're in the majority, the Republicans have the heaviest responsibility to speak out when their conscience whispers to them that they should. Thus far, very few have done so. You know, I was going to move. I was going to move on to to another part, but this you have a, a chapter on on empathy, and there are a couple of lines lines here. Again, like you say, you don't talk about President Trump at all. You don't mention his name. His name's not in the book. But in the empathy chapter on page one hundred one, you write, "I worry that our nation today suffers from a deficit of empathy." And this is especially true of many in positions of national leadership. And then two pages later, you write, one often finds the greatest lack of empathy in those who were born lucky. Well, I think it's, it's very clear who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like really clear. No, but, you know, I don't read, I'm not trying to be clever about this. But again, you know, I'm trying to elevate the level of discussion. Mm -hmm. And one of the, part of the spirit of what unites us is to say we need to be much more civil in our discussions. One can argue perhaps I haven't been as civil on this stage tonight as I should have been. But you know, we, we all know what's happening. By the way, the empathy chapter may be my own favorite chapter in the book. Because we are, as Americans, again, emphasizing we have our faults, we're not perfect. But one of the things we've had through our history, it's a mark of the American character to be empathetic. And we've seen marvelous, really wonderful demonstrations of it recently in the wake of the great hurricanes, particularly the one Harvey in Houston. We are an empathetic people. What's happened very recently, and I will say has been building for some years, is the idea somehow that compassion is enough. And here again, I, I refer to the dictionary. There's a difference between compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. And compassion is, I feel sorry for people. Empathy is saying, in effect, it's not feeling sorry for people. I understand, and I'm trying hard to understand what they're going through, and there, but for the grace of God, go I. That's empathy, and it is a, a hallmark of our history, a hallmark of our character. It's, there has been an attempt to sort of squeeze it out of our national character, but it isn't going to work. I know I put the, the, the press portion of your previous answer to the side, and I want to bring it back because the, a free press and free and unfettered press is one of the, the legs and the stool of our democracy. But you, you have an entire chapter devoted to books. And for you, books is maybe the second and third leg of that stool because of what books represent. And I know you want to, there's a, you want to talk about that part. You want to read a part. Well, I do. Um, well, thank you for asking. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, I love books. I was very lucky. 
I was introduced to books uh, uh, early and introduced to the Houston Heights Library when I was six, no more than seven years old. And it was one of the transforming events of my life. But you know, again, we tend to overlook how important books have been in our history. And in this chapter, uh, I, I will read, I hope I'll read a little better this time, but this is from page uh, 145. If you travel to Washington, D.C., you can see our country's debt to the power of books in the very heart of our federal city, next to the Supreme Court and facing the great dome of the Capitol is the Library of Congress. I find the symbolism inspiring. Three institutions that write, judge, and archive the words and thoughts that allow our nation to function. The Library of Congress was founded in 1800 with a modest mission, a reference resource for Congress, but that changed after the British burned Washington during the War of 1812, and the original collection was lost. In response, Thomas Jefferson offered to sell his own library to the U.S. government. His collection of books was considered one of the finest in the New World, containing thousands of volumes on almost every topic imaginable, not just law, statecraft, and history, but also the sciences, philosophy, and the arts. To those who argued that such a desperate set of works was unnecessary for a library of Congress, Jefferson responded, quote, there is in fact no subject to which a member of Congress may not have occasion to refer. Growing up in working class Houston, I had never heard of the Library of Congress or the great rotunda at the University of Virginia, but my local branch of the Houston Public Library showed me that books were not only important, they were also objects of beauty. The stone building had high ceilings, big windows, and a red tile roof. The Italian style architecture made the library seem worlds away from my Hodgecroft neighborhood. I was pleased that it later became a recognized historical landmark. Even as a high school student, I would often prolong my walk home from school to go by the library. It may sound sappy, but the building inspired me to dream of exploring a world greater than the world I knew. And don't put it away yet. <laughs> don't put it away yet. Um, because you, and that wasn't even my favorite part of this chapter. And I was going to read it myself, but you need to read it because, um, out loud I mean. <laughs> because the words that you say in the last paragraph of the book's chapter, page 153. Right, right. Is so stirring. And while he's finding the page, like I said. 153. My, I underline in my <laughs> books. It's so, th this is some great, great um, language here. Please read that last paragraph. The last paragraph on page 153. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is good, folks. <laughs> Our nation was born in a spirit of fierce debate 
Our founding fathers had sharp political differences, but they were almost all deep readers, writers, and thinkers. When they set about to create a modern republic, they went into their libraries and pulled out the works of philosophers such as John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. They consulted the Greeks, the Romans, the philosophers of Europe, and the Bible. They revered the power of the written word and how it enabled a nation free from the whims of a king. As John Adams wrote, a republic, quote, is a government of laws and not of men, unquote. A government of laws is a government of reason and a government of books. That was true at our founding, and we must ensure that it remains a hallmark of our future. I mean, come on. I'm so glad I got you to read that paragraph because it gave me chills to read it um, in the book and underline it vigorously. Um, but it's also wonderful to be reminded of the men, in this case, the men who set about the noble experiment of creating this country. Um, not perfect, um, not a perfect exercise, but they created a document and a nation that makes it possible for someone like me and someone like you to sit across from each other and have an, an open um, dialogue about who we are as a people. Wow, Dan, uh, we've got a lot of people. Um, and so I'm going, I am going to alternate. And so I'm going to, wow. I'm going to start with the guy in the tie. Hey, Mr. Rather, when you began your television career at CBS News, there were only three sources of news on television. We've evolved into a society where news is presented in so many different platforms and there are so many different flavors of news available. And when one, when one event happens, it can be interpreted and presented in so many different ways. What do you make of that in terms of how we move forward in processing what the truth is and what news means to different audiences? Here, as we move forward in the, in the post-digital age, it's more difficult for a news consumer today than it was during that time when I started at CBS News in 1962. It's a greater challenge for news consumers. It's a greater challenge to get a wide variety of news sources and compare them, not be in a silo and just want to hear an echo of what you've already decided. You know, I find with many people, this has been true over the years, but now it's more dangerous. There are people who take the view, you know, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is made up. In a society such as ours, this is dangerous. So there is a lot of good reporting being done today, but you have to search a little harder to find it. With the old business model for not only newspapers, but also in many ways for electronic journalism, gone and nobody coming up with a new business model American journalism is in what I would call a kind of interregnum. 
It's a word from the Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic, but it's a word. And then the regnum is the, the old order is gone. The new order is not yet in place. Now, and this is affecting the quality of news that in general that you get and is something to, you know, to consider. I have no idea what the business model will be going forward. I, I, my optimism tells me we'll find one. But news consumers need to understand that among the pressures on journalistic institutions and individual journalists, one of the problems is what I just outlined, that it's, it's a shrinking of coverage as the resources available for coverage get more and more limited as a general proposition. And last question. As a millennial with minimal history, what does someone who's lived through all this would say to go forward, to cut through all of the craziness? What's a focus that's reasonable we can look at? And what's an action everyday people can do to move forward? So sorry. So she has a question about moving forward. What is a focus that millennials like her can zero in on? And what, I've, I've now lost the second thing, I think it was an action. Oh, you're, you're still there. Reasonable daily action that they can do to help move things forward. Well, keep in mind, I'm going to try to answer the question, but keep in mind, please, ma'am, that what you're looking at. I'm not a man is, yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very important, perhaps now more than any other time in my lifetime, my own lifetime, with the possible exception of World War II to ask that question of yourself every day. And I would suggest, it's just very respectfully suggest, the first thing is how can I help someone else? How can I help this, you know, one step that President Kennedy in his memorable inaugural address uh, when he was sworn in asked, made the statement, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. A reminder of that and then bring it down to the local level every day. What, I'm not gonna ask what my community can, can do for me, what my school, what the city government. I'm gonna ask what I can do for my neighbor. And I would add one thing, particularly in today's environment, if in saying to yourself, I wanna help one other person today, make that a goal every day, one other person today, if you can make that a person who is of different race than you, different religion than yourself, different ethnic background of yourself, that this, I, I, I'm convinced, will help you as a person, but it also is a contribution to your country. The other thing on a much broader scale, the most powerful thing in a system of government such as ours is the ballot. That, to vote, to do everything you can to get everybody else to vote is a major contribution to your country and will be for the rest of your life. Thank you. Thank you very much. That question. Dan, or Mr. Rather, as everyone said, <laughs> and they came up. But her question and your answer um, leads perfectly to the paragraph that I wanted to read from your book, 
you wrote in the chapter Courage on page 268. <laughs> Do not apologize or explain away your brand of patriotism. Do not sacrifice your ideals. Ultimately, democracy is an action more than a belief. The people's voice, your voice, must be heard for it to have an effect. Dan Rather and Elliot Kirshner, thank you very much for what unites us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hello, I'm Dan Lamoth, a national security writer here at The Washington Post. I'm the host of our newest podcast, Letters from War. It's the story of a family of brothers fighting in World War II. It is told mostly through the hundreds of letters that they wrote to each other. The letters detail everything from the Great Depression to their favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, to the horrors of combat that they themselves saw. In this podcast, modern-day veterans will read the parts of the brothers. And at times, they will relate their own experiences to what they're reading. Check it out on WashingtonPost.com slash Letters from War. The Washington 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 Post. Post.